0: And welcome to episode 22 of uh, You Don't Know History. Uh, I want to say thank you to everybody. We broke 500 listens the last two weeks, so that's really rad. Uh, But today, for episode 22, I am joined by Dr. Adam A. Blackler, Assistant Professor of History at the University of Wyoming. Dr. Blackler specializes in German colonial studies and Holocaust and genocide studies. But today, he's going to sit down and let us know about the Weimar Republic. Uh, Dr. Blackler, how are you, sir? I am fine, sir. How are you? Thank you for having me. Well, thank you for coming on, and I'm doing very well. I'm very excited about this because, like we were just talking about, when people, typically what they know about Weimar, it was that period in between two world wars, um, and there was a lot more going on about that. And then I may be overstating uh, that you know, Weimar was a tipping point um, and, and the, what was happening politically there, uh, it could have went either way. It didn't have to just go down the far right, you know, Nazi path. It could have went the complete other way, uh, with the exception of a few curveballs.
1: Uh, full agreement. And I'm, Michael, I'm really glad you mentioned that. Um, if, if there's maybe one thing that I hope anybody would take away from what I have to say about Weimar today, it's that it was not... Doomed to failure. Uh, just to maybe restate what you what you asked in, the, in in the question, it was not doomed to failure. And I think oftentimes, uh, if it's talked about at all, be it in a university classroom or a high school classroom, or just in if it's referenced in in some article somewhere, uh, it, it's cast in those terms, and that is just simply not the truth uh, for reasons that I strongly su- uh, suspect we'll get into today. Um, uh, that is also not to say though that that it did not face problems. There were severe social uh, inequalities and uh, uh, lingering issues and memories as a result of the First World War to say nothing of the disastrous economic uh, catastrophes that Weimar felt and faced in addition to the political, uh, uh, I would say, um, uh, uh, flexes or political uh, um, uh, cleavages that it felt within society and, and trying to really figure out what it meant to be a liberal democracy. And all of that is true. Uh, But as we will, uh, as again, I suspect we will cover, um, it had a chance to succeed. And that is why I think more and more people are talking about it today, both as historians, both as political scientists, uh, as well as journalists, because there were a lot of things that uh, suggested this would have been a very successful society. And it could have been there. It could have made it. Uh, And I think that's one of the things I lament so much not just as a historian, but I think as a human being, I would have liked to see this succeed. Yeah.
0: I mean, just think if it would have just, you know, an election spun a different way by just a percentage point or two, right? Like, uh, especially, I want to say, like, it was a 31 election, if I'm remembering it correctly, that's where, like, you know, we'll we'll get more to the parties later, but you had two parties that were, like, neck and neck, and it didn't have to, like I said, it didn't have to go one way. Yeah. Uh, But I think the thing I remember most about the Weimar Republic uh, is the picture of the woman with a literal wheelbarrow full of cash that she's just trying to get down to the store to buy bread. Uh, That's the thing that that I remember most about it. Um, And that in a story that there were people who lived in Germany that used the currency as wallpaper because it was almost completely worthless at at one point. Um, But let's go ahead and jump into this, right? Now, you know, for anybody that's listening that doesn't know, on November 11th, 1918, we get the armistice that calls a halt to the First World War. Um, but in Germany, at this point, you know, the, the writing was on the wall. Uh, you know, the, the war effort hadn't been going well for for a little. I mean, I'm, some would argue once the Americans entered the war and kind of threw the the, the bodies that France – in, in England, needed on the Western Front, and uh, but you could say that there was a chance that they could have turned it around. But I mean, I, I don't know. Um, but you know, at this point, a revolution broke out in Germany, and workers and soldiers councils were being set up throughout the country, modeled closely after the Soviet Union's October Revolution in 1917. Now, at this point, how strong was the socialist movement in Germany?
1: It's a great question, Michael, uh, and I promised to answer that directly. But I think you did a really good job of setting up the, the stage to November 11th of, of 1918. If I may just add one more, one more component and then directly answer your question. Um, the war effort had uh, been going, indeed been going very poorly for uh, Germany in general, as well as its allies in Europe at that point, uh, by the middle of the summer of that same year. Um, and the key thing to remember in this whole situation uh, and one could make an argument, I should say, that the war effort had actually turned even before that in spite of, of uh, the Germans' victory in, in the East. Um, but for our purposes here, um, uh, the thing that is key is the army was effectively running and ruling as a dictatorship by the summer of 1918. The Kaiser was still there, uh, Kaiser Wilhelm II. The Reichstag was, in, in theory, still functioning. Uh, but in, in effect, uh, uh, Paul von Hindenburg and Erich von Ludendorff were effectively as chief of the military, uh, the heads of the military staff running the country. Uh, And the last thing they wanted uh, the military, the soldiers themselves to know, but especially the public to know, is that the war had turned. Um, And so by the the early fall and then eventually into the late fall of 1918, uh, when the armistice was signed, that really captured the surprise uh, or caught the surprise of most people in Germany who had up to that point been told that they were winning. Um, and it wasn't just propaganda in terms of news reports. It was actually looking at a map. Uh, if, if a casual citizen looked at a map of the war effort at that point, they would have seen that the war in the East was won uh, with what is present-day Ukraine, Belarus, uh, the Baltic states, much, uh, much of what is Western Russia today under German occupation. And in the West, they would have seen the front lines still in either Belgium or parts of France. So they thought they were winning. Um, and so when we get to this this pivotal moment when the armistice is signed, and this gets to your, directly to your question, Michael, socialism uh, and socialist parties as they existed, there were, there were multiple varieties of them. Uh, the largest political party uh, in Germany at this time uh, in 1918 was the Social Democratic Party, the SPD. Um, and uh, they were a democratic party in the sense that it supported egalitarian democracy working within a democratic or functioning republican system. Uh, but there were also uh, uh, political parties to the left of them that were not not necessarily Marxian in in orientation, but nevertheless uh, were further to the left politically, uh, that in some cases worked with the government, in other cases did not. Uh, And then, of course, you will eventually get uh, uh, the German Communist Party, the the K-P-Day, that will fully associate itself with Bolshevism uh, and actively work with the Soviet Union um, uh, in both 1918 and then, of course, going forward into the early 20s. Um, so this is a long way to answer your question, Michael, and, uh, and I hope it, it, it comes together uh, uh, clearly. But uh, these forces uh, only gained in support, uh, excuse me, only gained in popularity because of the, of the perceived, uh, of, the, of the actual lies that the, the German public was told. And the Social Democratic Party and and its, and its uh, associated and affiliated parties uh, were actually telling the truth and so they, they actually uh, had some trust for a period of time um, but then also as uh, the early 20s went on and the economic strife continued they seemed to be the only ones that had answers um, at least initially and that of course will change uh, but it was a popular movement um, and eventually that will will seg, will sag but it's popular in the beginning
0: OK, yeah, I mean, and I think that's that's the important thing is that you start seeing a little more of a push to, to be involved in, like you said, a, a Republican form of government. They wanted representation, you know, a more representation for German workers. Um, and, you know, we, we start seeing, uh, you know, a big push for the, uh, the Kaiser to abdicate, which he finally did. Um, so who kind of pushed this on, on Wilhelm? to say, hey, you know, Kaiser, it's, it's time for you to go away. Uh, you know, the, 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 this Reich is done. Uh, we have to transition into something new.
1: You know, one of the pivotal days in German history is the 9th of November, and this was this was the first instance that kind of starts this chain of the 9th of November being the significant day in German history. Um, Kaiser Wilhelm II, as you say, abdicates. Uh, he received pressure from all segments of society, of course, but, sp- uh, excuse me, specifically within the government itself. Uh, specifically among um, uh, members of the Hohenzollern dynasty, which he represented and was, of course, at the head of, uh, but other various German princes. Um, uh, he, re- he received a lot of pressure from uh, traditionally conservative political parties, uh, certain uh, members within the German military staff. Um, and ironically, uh, and I don't want to give the impression that he didn't face pressure from the German left at all, because he absolutely did. But ironically, the one individual that didn't, Really seek uh, either the abdication of the Kaiser himself or, for that matter, the dissolution of the monarchy, was the man that will eventually become the first president uh, of the Weimar government, uh, and that's Friedrich Ebert, uh, who at this time was the head of the SPD, uh, but uh, in spite of, of his uh, social democratic background, politically and otherwise... Um, uh, in many res- in many respects felt that the monarchy had a place in society, um, a limited one or a weakened one, of course, to, was a desire, um, but was, was fearful about what this might mean. But uh, uh, this is just to make the point that there were pressure from across society, and what ultimately did it, um, is, uh, what led to the abdication on the 9th, uh, is when all support all even seeming support that, that had existed, faded away. When he realized there were riots on the streets, when there were mutinies at, between you know the, 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 the famous uh, stories of, of um, uh, members of the German Navy, seamen uh, in Kiel uh, rising up, and this, of course, leads to women marching in the streets and then eventually joined by their brethren, uh, the fronts collapsing, etc., um, when he realized that there was absolutely no way he could continue to stay on uh, uh, and even a, a, in a figurato- figuratory manner, he abdicated. Um, and the one thing he did demand and, and was uh, ultimately su- successful in accomplishing, he did want to make sure that he was, was not going to be tried or, or maybe find himself in front of a firing squad. So, of course, he ends up uh, finding refuge in neutral Holland, where he will eventually and, and effectively stay for the rest of his life. Um, but that was really the one demand that he had and was able to really uh, uh, manifest for himself. Uh, but he eventually face, faces pressure from the entirety of, of the government, and that leads to his abdication.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's funny that a war that started out literally as a, when you, when you look at it, a large part of it was a family squabble. Uh, since, you know, three of the, the leaders at the time were cousins. Famous um, guns of August, yes. Yeah, you know, it's it's like you could have just held a really nice family reunion and kind of, like, hashed out all these details yeah. prior to, you know. Um, but, yeah, I mean, that, that's what I thought really interesting, is he goes to Holland, right? It just kind of lives out the rest of his days, um, which I thought was, was shocking, uh, considering you don't often, like, through history, like, I, I, I focus more on Irish history, and in turn, there's a lot of English history that I do read and research because you can't learn about one without the other. Um, you know, if you have a, a king that abdicated or or was no longer on the th- the throne, you know, you typically don't see him last long, right? Like somebody's going out to get him because they they can turn into a figurehead or, or kind of a, a a pole for opposition. Um, but on you know, we we know that the Kaiser abdicates on 9 November, and a German Republic was proclaimed by Philip Scheidermann a German socialist. Um, now, were the, were the German people like, okay, let's do this. Let's, let's jump into republicanism. Or were they just kind of like, all right, Scheidermann, go sit down, relax. They're, they're, let the adults talk and we'll figure this out. Michael, I'm glad you asked that question again. I'm not trying to be agreeable, but I think
1: this is one of the most, uh, again, this, this speaks to what we talked about earlier about the potential successes of, of Weimar. Um, Philip Scheidemann, first of all, uh, was a member of the Social Democratic Party. Um, which is, I think, a key thing to distinguish, and I'll, I'll point that out in a second. Um, and again, a believer in, in what we would today refer to, and even then, liberal democracy uh, uh, in, in all that that, that represents. Um, and the famous story is on the, on the morning of November 9th, uh, while he and Friedrich Ebert and members of, of what will become the governing coalition, uh, members of, uh, other members of the SPD, and, uh, et cetera, uh, were meeting in the Reichstag to really hash out what uh, this, this uh, new government would look like. And it was left up to Scheidemann uh, to go to the window, one of the v- major windows overlooking the, the, the uh, next to the Tiergarten, um where a large crowd had gathered, waiting to see what was, was uh, g- going to occur. Uh, and he opened the window and, and with a pe- piece of paper in his hand, uh, reaches out the window and says, a republic, a republic, I proclaim a republic. This very ma- fa- famous moment, uh, all these uh, uh, photographs are taken of this uh, incident. And the crowd goes wild because the crowd feverishly supported the idea of a liberal democracy. And this is something that Germans had a taste of. Of course, at, uh, up to this point, we're speaking primarily of men, men over uh, uh, 20 years of age. Um, uh, this will eventually, the, the, the vote suffrage will eventually uh, find its way into the hands of women uh, and everyone else over 20 years old as well. And there's other conditions as well that, that we could talk about. Um, but they embraced this opportunity and, and they, they seize this moment and are ecstatic. But right down the road, right down unter den Linden, um, in, in what comes to be known as the Red Palace, or the Red City Hall, excuse me, right next to the Red City Hall, the Schloss, the Berliner Schloss, uh, which uh, was recently rebuilt in Germany, uh, in Berlin. Um, members of what will become the German Communist Party, Karl Liebknecht, uh, Rosa Luxemburg, uh, and others, uh, but these two in particular, heard this news and go to the balcony of the Berliner Schloss and say, no, no, no. A Soviet, a Soviet. Germany is now a Soviet. Uh, and so at the very beginning, and there wasn't as large of a crowd there to be sure, but nonetheless, the word was out. Yeah. So at the very beginning of this republic, even though it wasn't necessarily a republic, in, 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 it was only a republic in, in, the, in the words of Philip Scheidemann, um, there was already dissension. In the city, about what it was going to be, what it was going to look like, uh, uh, if was violence going to going to be a necessary component that makes one of the other a possibility. This was not a, a seeming or a seamless process, um, and I think that that moment really suggests uh, uh, gives a hint of some of the troubles that that lay in front of of this republic, in spite of the fact again that it was not doomed to failure. These first months, were, will, as we'll see, will uh, prove to be very violent and very chaotic.
0: Yeah, I mean, I've read a lot of Rosa, so uh, I know what she, how she felt about the SDP because she— was not uh, kind with her words, uh, to say the least. <laughs> but uh, so, like, we're 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 sitting on this kind of like you said. We're 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 already seeing dissension, and it's only like thirteen seconds old, right? Like, Shotem just got done waving waving the paper with the proclamation on it, and then Rose is down the road, like, uh. Uh-uh. Um, but yeah. as
1: you say, another two days. That still has to get resolved. So there's all kinds of stuff, as you say, Michael. Yeah. yeah.
0: So we, we see Germany would eventually be led by the Council of the People's Deputies. Uh, this would be split up between two primary socialist parties, the MSPD and the USPD. Um, and they were, the, the MSPD was led by uh, Friedrich Ebert, and then the USPD is led by Hugo Haas. I, I believe that's how you would pronounce that properly. Um, they would end up overseeing the signing of the armistice on 11 November 1918, Um, And that takes us into our second part, right? This is the actual formation of the republic. Uh, This isn't just, you know, again, Scheiderman out on the balcony waving the proclamation in his hand. These two people are trying to form a government. Um, And they would stay in power until January 1919, uh, which, when you look at it, isn't very long. Um, And I I think that would probably be one of the things that would damn Weimar is that their governments typically didn't last very long from what I was able to, to research. But what were some of the reforms and changes that they instituted uh, to, like you said, go along with this idea of a liberal democratic state?
1: Absolutely. Uh, I'm, first of all, I'm glad you mentioned the, the, the fact that it first of all existed as a council, uh, because what this council specifically set upon itself to do was to ultimately negotiate uh, and vote upon what the the, for, the actual government would be. So it's this body that will ultimately, ultimately lead into what will become the Weimar Constitution, the Weimar Republic, as we understand it. And that will formally come into being in February of 1919. Um, so um, this, for the most part, this, this coalition was almost certainly always going to be temporary. But nonetheless, they wanted to enact legislation uh, and, and reforms that they had been advocating for internally as long as they had existed. Uh, so just to answer your question, uh, everything from an eight-hour workday uh, to opportunities for insurance, be it unemployment, be it um, uh, workers' rights, uh, be, it the, be it the opportunity for, um, in some cases, uh, limits on what rent could be, uh, a monthly rent could be, run, uh, rent hikes, um, uh, uh, obviously veterans' uh, benefits and veterans' pay, considering that the war was going to be coming to an end, um, Everything that along these, of course, women's rights, unquestionably women's rights. Um, I don't want to give the impression that this was a majority opinion within this coalition, but nonetheless, it was there. Um, more rights and more, uh, uh, I would use the word tolerance uh, for um, uh, gay men and lesbian women. Uh, trans, uh, lgbtq plus uh, uh, communities uh, the lgbtq plus community uh, had some at least advocacy uh, among these these individuals though again not what we'd like to see but nonetheless uh for the time i think it was it was important to to mention this um, so so all of these kinds of reforms that um, uh, will eventually come to uh, uh, i i don't want to say dominate but i think really stand as um, markers for the early years of the Weimar Republic, at least politically speaking, while the political left was a majority. Um, And so in essence, that's what they really seek to enact and ultimately are are really successful in a lot of these pledges. Unfortunately, a lot of their reforms will later be undone by subsequent more uh, politically conservative governments, but many of them do remain in place because of their popularity, specifically insurance reform, again, uh, specifically unemployment reform uh, and insurance things of these, of these, uh, of this nature.
0: Yeah. I mean, that, that was a, uh, I mean, looking at the time period, that is a pretty extensive social safety net. Um, yeah. you know, those, those are things that a lot of, uh, you know, liberal democracies around the planet didn't have, um, yep. you know, so, I mean, that, that's a big step. Uh, and I, yeah. I, give them a lot of credit for that, even though you did say that these two, these two weren't going to play nice long. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, but after, after we see some of these reforms get pushed, uh, you know, we see something called the uh, Ebert Groner Pact. Well, you know, what, what was that deal and, and why was it struck? Sure. So,
1: in a nutshell, Michael, so the war just had come to an end by this point, uh, only by a handful of days, even a couple of weeks, by when this eventually comes into being. Um, and what this pact was about was it was signed between Friedrich Ebert, who was the president of this council, uh, and as you say, uh, Gruner, uh, who was, if memory serves me correctly, either a captain or a lieutenant colonel. I can't remember which one now, Uh, but a high-ranking official within the German military uh, who had standing with uh, uh, soldiers and and the general staff. Um, And the reason they come together is Germany at this point, and specifically Berlin and, and places like Munich, big urban cities, had in some cases devolved into civil war. It was a it was a it was a moment of crisis, uh, again, as a direct result of the First World War, as a direct result of, of the chaos that the end of the war uh, ushered in. Uh, you had soldiers. Uh, Germany, by this point, uh, uh, before the end of the war, had over seven million men uh, enlisted in the army. And so suddenly they, have, they don't know what to do. They're, they're, they're wandering back home. Uh, they have their weapons. They, they, they're not getting paid in some cases. Um, uh, there's no sense of what's going on. And so there were a lot of actors that took advantage of of this moment um, and unleashed various, as I say, various internal civil wars, uh, be it within, when I say internal, either within federal states in Germany or efforts to actually create a civil war throughout the entirety of Germany. Um, This was a very localized as well as a very nationalized um, uh, moment. And so what this pact was about, Gruner and uh, Friedrich Ebert, is that in exchange for the military supporting this very early, what will become the Weimar government, uh, in exchange for them supporting this Weimar government, the Weimar government under Ebert pledged that it would allow the army to continue to stand and exist as a kind of an independent entity. Um, so in other words, if they agreed to put down these, these what will eventually become known as the Freikorps, these, these right-wing Primarily right-wing, though, there were some very left-wing, as, as we probably will talk about as well. But primarily uh, right-wing groups, groups like the Stahlhelm become the, some of the more infamous ones. Um, if they agree to put down these uprisings, they will support the military's standing in society once the chaos is over. Uh, and this agreement is key because it ultimately proves to be successful. Um, the German military is successful in putting down these uprisings very violently, very bloody, uh, in a very bloody fashion. Um, but in striking this deal, specifically members of the USPD uh, and other more very left leaning, um, yet still supporters of, the, of a liberal democracy, ultimately choose to disband from this government. Uh, and that's what will ultimately lead to one of the first coalitions breaking down right at the start of February of 1919.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that's a, that's a good point it, for everybody that may not be too savvy on on how the German military standing was in the country. It had a very exalted presence in that country. Um and you know they they had uh they had a lot of pool, I think politically, that would be safe to say. Um and and I wouldn't say they operated independently, but uh it, they they had the opportunity, especially higher up in the German chain of command, they had the opportunity when they didn't like something coming from higher to just kind of be like, well I didn't see it. Uh and yeah. as as long as they were protecting the fatherland, everything was all well and good, you know. Yeah. Um, <laughs>
1: yeah, and and as you say to that point, Michael, um, uh, it, it's not so much that they were operating as an independent, uh, you know, entity or institution within the state, but at this exact moment, I think it's fair to say they kind of were, because as you said, you were absolutely correct in that they were the only ones that commanded complete and total support from almost every single member of German society. Uh, not only because this was something that not uh, this isn't this wasn't necessarily unique to Germany at this time. I think sometimes uh, pop culture suggests this was the case. But the uh, uh, German military, uh, um, uh, up to this point during the Kaiserreich, so, uh, citizens were told to have a considerable amount of deference for the military. This was kind of not necessarily a cultural thing, but it was, it was drilled into Germans from a young age. Um, so that's key. Number two, uh, to go back to a point I made a little bit earlier, the, the idea was that the German military actually wasn't defeated. Uh, it was betrayed. If you look yep. at where the front lines were when, again, the armistice was signed, a lot of people could make in their minds a legitimate argument that uh, uh, they were winning. And so what then suggests that, wh- wh- what, why did then uh, Germany, why were they forced to sign this, uh, um, this armistice? Uh, and it has to do with something referred to as, uh, in German, it's called the uh the stab in the back legend. This is something that starts to really um, uh, proliferate throughout Germany during this moment, the late fall of 1918 and then throughout 1919 and thereafter. And that's this idea that uh, specifically uh, members on the home front, uh, people that were against the war from the very beginning, um, uh, uh, members on the political left, communists, and specifically Jews, stabbed the German army in the back. Uh, and therefore uh, um, betrayed Germans of what would have been this very glorious victory. Um, Complete nonsense, not based in a shred of fact or even a a gesture toward a hint of of evidence. Um, uh, Look no further than the fact that it's people like Paul von Hindenburg, uh, who proliferates this at the very beginning, um, realize that there was only a benefit to have, uh, they would only gain a benefit from the German military still uh, having this, this reputation, even after it lost. Um, but that has a really terrible uh, effect on German politics in this early stage and then going forward because the military continued to have this this ability to not in, not entirely serve as a kingmaker, but, but certainly in this early stage have a big impact on uh, on who ultimately had a chance to come out successfully. Uh, and that is why this agreement was so important between Gruner and
0: Ebert. Yeah, I mean, that's the unfortunate thing. If you look out through... Uh, uh, you know the li- going through the, the the labor movements like go you know we'll even start at 1848 and, and the big in- nationalist independence movements that, that just sprang up all over Europe. In that year, you kind of saw the seeds of what would be the a really robust labor movement. Maybe not co- you know communist and socialist parties, but actual unions forming, right? And this was this went from the United States. You know you got to think you had the Pullman car strike in 1858. Uh, uh, excuse me 1868 but there you know you had smaller things like the knights of labor and and whatnot prior to this the start of the civil war and it was just it was spreading Um, but especially if you look at germany east a lot of the big proponents of those labor movements were jews they were very active in these labor movements and like you had said like this this starts get passed around well labor movements didn't want any part of the war Uh, some of them were like you said closely aligned with you know, communist and socialist parties who were who saw it as a rich man's war, sending poor people out to fight, sending workers out to fight, okay. uh, and, and you know it just kind of seeded, you know, that that ignorance that look, uh, you know, these uh, these Jewish uh, citizens were members of these communist and socialist parties and these union movements, and look what they did to us, uh, yeah. and it and we saw the devastating effects of that taking seed and growing, uh, you know, by nineteen thirty three, absolutely. Uh, but uh, yeah, so we 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 see that you know the the German military is going to help this this fledgling government deal with like you said all these hot spots all throughout the country. Um, but eventually, you know the uh, Ebert Haas government collapses, right? Like we, we but we see the USPD and the MSPD split over Ebert calling out the military to put down. Uh, and and the the research I saw was mostly left. Like he had the military attack a lot of left wing protests, but yes. I, but like I, I think they're you know they like you said they already alluded to they did take out some right wingers as well, um, but uh, a lot of leftists in the government uh, felt betrayed that he would use the military yeah. against their own organizations, um, yeah. but you know like what, why would Eber do that? Was it was it literally just like well I have to do something to keep the government or the the country from dissolving into all-out civil war or or did he just or was it just like kind of a, a reflex like i got to do something things are just bad you know Everett was a practical
1: man and i don't say that in any as a negative um he was somebody that definitely again had his own ideological convictions but also very much feared what a reactionary movement might mean uh um not just for Germany, but maybe considering what was going on geopolitically. Obviously, he had it was not uh, uh, from his, you know, far from his mind about what had happened in, in what was now the Soviet, what was then the Soviet Union, um, and was very much aware that Le, uh, Leon Trotsky and and uh, Nikolai Bukharin and, and other members that were leading the Red Army very much wanted to link up with uh, not just German communists, but many others throughout, um, uh, Europe. Uh, so this was something that he was very fearful of. And this was also a very proud German, uh, as were most members of the German government by this point. Um, uh, even the SPD, uh, and, uh, really all political parties with the exception of the fledgling communist party in 1914, um, supported the war, at least in its first year and a half or so. So I think it's very important to understand that. Um, So that was really, I I would say, one way to answer the question. But secondly, um, they believed, Ebert in particular believed, that the SPD and its coalition, its governing coalition, if given a chance, could really have a a significant impact on society. Germans, in their mind, wanted egalitarian democracy, wanted a liberal democratic system, not an extreme one way or another. That was the popular decision. Um, and so if it meant that the only way they could marshal to give themselves an opportunity to, to create that kind of political society, if that meant they had to form into this uh, maybe troublesome or, or nerve uh, uh, wracking uh, agri- uh, alliance, so be it. Um, but the, 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 the key point you also meant, or made, and I think this is very important, in, in Weimar's very early years, there they they were localized, as I said. I would say, hot spots, you know, small little civil wars going on throughout, throughout much of society. But the first very significant threat to the government did not come from the right immediately. It, as you said, it came from the German left, the, the, specifically the, uh, the Communist Party. Um, and uh, the, the, the two names I mentioned a little bit earlier, Karl Liebknecht and Rosa Luxemburg, um, in uh, early January of 1919, uh, launched something known today is referred to as the Spartacus Aufstand, which the Spartacus Uprising. Uh, and this was an effort to seize control of the German government. And actually, uh, when I say it was successful, it was successful in, 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 a, in such that it actually forced uh, the government temporarily to leave Berlin and actually to go to Weimar. Uh, that's one of the reasons why it gets the name Weimar Republic. It eventually, it will go a lot of other places as well, but Weimar becomes its hub. Um, uh, And the only reason this effort is is uh, put down is because of these both the army, but also these Freikorps uh, that were were effectively brought into the German military and given an opportunity. And I say that I I use the word opportunity. These were primarily made up of of really extreme German nationalists who, who feared and loathed everything that they thought of as being communism. And so. In many respects, a lot of these figures very much relish the opportunity to not arrest, but actually murder uh, yeah. a lot of these individuals. And Rosa Luxemburg and uh, Karl Liebknecht among them, among them uh, were, were, were captured, tortured uh, brutally, uh, and eventually killed. Um, uh, and, and, and that leads to this, this coalition ultimately collapsing because of the actions that the military takes and ultimately was endorsed and supported by the, the governing
0: uh, uh, body. Well, I mean since you already brought him up, who made up the Fry Corps? Like where I was under the impression it was a lot of veterans and uh uh and kind of like auxiliaries that were called up for the war. And when the war ended, it was kind of like, All right, man, you're on your own right now. You know, and they, they kind of felt like they had no place to go.
1: All of those groups you just said, uh Michael, uh primarily veterans, uh uh, uh those that either supported the war or those that, uh, and then ultimately maybe became disgruntled with it, but then feared what, what might be coming next. So they they re, you know they re, they take up their arms again and, and, and join these, these, these bands. Um, uh, groups that, as I say, diehard German nationalists that feared uh, communism, that feared uh, a, a liberal democratic system. Um, groups that, in some cases, fought in support of the, the monarchy. Uh, I don't want to give the impression that there were a lot of those exclusively. Um, But in their mind that the monarchy was something that was very good um, and therefore should continue to exist. Uh, Groups that formed to fight communists specifically, uh, not just those that were affiliated with the government, but um, uh, a a very important case, uh, Bavaria, for a period of time during these early years, will actually uh, secede from Germany and establish a Soviet. It doesn't last very long, um, but it actually establishes uh, power in Munich. Frycor will emerge and ultimately put that down in very violent, uh, uh, using very mi- violent methods. Um, so these, these really originate from, from people from all scores of life, but for the overwhelming majority of them harbored very vehement uh, nationalist viewpoints um, and had a very, um, uh, I will use the word vehement again, vehement uh, um, reaction to communism.
0: Yeah, I mean and this this is where we, we kind of see that that big push pull, right? Like uh we saw the October Revolution happen and you know I, I had the the great uh privilege of learning from people like Dr. Johnson and Dr. Bruce Dehart, amazing uh Russia scholars and Soviet scholars, and Russia was in a total shit state uh and was ripe for revolution. It really was. Um and then you look at Germany, and while the material conditions were a bit different, um, but you you kind of look at it, and it all all it would have taken was like one spark, right? Like one real spark to to push it even further left uh, than they wanted to go. Uh, so like you're going to see that counterbalance as well with groups like the Freikorps and and those uh, kind of reactionary uh, movements. Um, but, yeah, let's let's talk about this new Constitution, though. Uh, in 19 January 1919, the National Assembly was elected with the moderate MSPD taking most of the seats. Uh, and they would be in a position to kind of guide the writing of the Constitution. Mm-hmm. Um, and it would set up a parliamentary democratic republic and a, a legislative body known as the Reichstag uh, would be filled by proportional representation. Now, before we go on, why don't you break down what proportional representation is Ah, uh, because that's a little different than than what we do here in the states.
1: Sure. So the German constitu- constitution that was signed in 1871 uh, was meant it was it was it was split up proportionally. That was meant inherently to favor Prussia, um, and the idea behind that because Prussia of was the largest of the sixteen states. Uh, well, now it's 616, at the time, 33, Um, uh, was the largest of the states to unify Germany into what will become uh, the Kaiserreich in 1871. Um, It wanted to guarantee, specifically Audubon Bismarck, wanted to guarantee that Prussia, and specifically within Prussia, landowning elites would always have an opportunity to, in spite of of maybe a growing population elsewhere, somewhere down the road, they would always be in a position politically to dominate. So if, if, if memory serves me correctly, for every one Prussian, for every one vote uh, that uh, somebody in Bavaria, for instance, or somebody in Baden-Württemberg uh, or Baden-Or-Württemberg or, or Westphalia uh, uh, offered uh, uh, in, on any specific federal uh, legislation, um, one Prussian vote counted for 60. All right. So there you can see <laughs> wow. it has, it has <laughs> immense, <laughs> immense advantages built in. But in spite of all, and there's many other things we could, we could talk about with that, um, but in spite of that reality, by the time we get to the turn of the 20th century, uh, that, that uh, system wasn't necessarily inherently favoring the advantages of Prussia. And, and even if it was, it wasn't necessarily favoring the groups that Bismarck, by this point dead, uh, had intended to to benefit from that system, uh, and specifically, what I say here is the landowning elites in particular still w- were able to um, uh, uh, enjoy a lot of of, of uh, power, um, uh, minority power, nonetheless. But non- uh, but power in in places like the military, uh, in places like uh, uh, anybody, any place in society that benefited from uh, the Junkers uh, and and other members of the of the, of the nobility, but. It was really, the people that were really benefiting and starting to really dictate society were members of what uh, comes to be known as the German New Right. Uh, and this would be industrialists, this would be uh, heads of corporations, this would be diehard German nationalists that did not necessarily identify, at least exclusively, with the with the monarchy, but actually more along the ideas of uniting all German-speaking peoples into German lands, pan movements, things like this. Um, uh, people that increasingly started to, uh, not exclusively, but but nonetheless existed, started to look as at at uh, the uh, look at Germans as a race. All right, and I don't want to again give the impression this was unique to Germany. It was not. Um, so all of these more, I would say, um, chauvinistic ideas, chauvinistic nationalistic ideas of what it might mean to be German. Um, and so to get to your point, when the Weimar Constitution comes into being. One of the one of the principal things that its founders wanted to do was up upset that dynamic and actually make one person equals one vote or one person uh, gets to have the same representation as the person next
0: to them, um, and and that whole system is disbanded. Good, yeah, I see. And that that's I think that's that's a we we have to break these things down because there are some times where I'm reading, and you'll get like um uh you know like a, a Polish term, you know that that is a certain term for how they uh, uh, set up the votes during, like, the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, right? And I'm like, I, and, and, you know, these historians, and I appreciate them, don't get me wrong, but sometimes take a time out, throw an extra two sentences in there, and let me, the person who doesn't specialize in Poland, uh, you know, the Polish-Lithuanian uh, Commonwealth, know what that means, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I understand. <laughs> um, but, you know, we... I, I labeled this part growing pains, right? Because we have this brand new country, you know, technically, right? We have a brand new constitution. It, it's, it's shed off a monarchy. It's setting up a liberal democracy. Um, but then we remember that we just finished a war and now we're going into post-war negotiations. And this might be, honestly, probably the most um, just short-sighted, peace treaty and I use peace in, in air quotes, right? Uh that you could you could probably throw out there, but the Versailles Treaty, which essentially was written to punish Germany. Um and but what were what were some of the most damning clauses that the German that this new growing German government had to deal with going forward?
1: Sure. Um well we we talked about some of the internal I guess we could call them domestic problems and again we could talk about those endlessly and 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 you could have an entire show on that alone Michael but but as you say we we can't dismiss the the first world war and its conclusion uh And let me just start with what you said, and I I absolutely agree with you. It was meant, it was intentional to make this document, the Treaty of Versailles, so specifically the one everyone knows about, uh, the one that specifically and and exclusively deals with Germany. There were other treaties, but this one was for Germany. It was meant to not only humiliate Germany, but it was also meant to make it impossible for Germany to ever again threaten uh, the peace and stability of the European continent. Uh, and I and I don't want to go too far down this road. That is not to say that I fully agree that Germany was the sole cause of the First World War. There's a reason why there are, are libraries filled with books on the origins of the First World War. Um, uh, there were many things we could talk about that led to the, origin, uh, the origins of the First World War. But Germany, of course, had a central role in starting it. So I think that's very in, uh, important to understand.
0: Absolutely. So, but before you go on, we also have to point out, so did Britain, so, so did, did France, Britain. and so did imperial russia like all of all four of those countries were itching to go to war and they picked a pretext which because of the most ridiculous web of self or you know uh, a mutual defense treaties uh that you know they found one in the murdering of uh franz ferdinand and sarajevo right um so like yes germany had a central role but again so did russia so did britain so did France, you know, like I, I want people to know that as well.
1: (laughs) Hold on if I may, just one of the, one of the books from the countless libraries that are filled with books on this subject. Uh, It's, it's, it it still feels like it's new to me, but I realize that time is moving forward. Um, But Christopher Clark's sleepwalkers, I can't emphasize that enough. Uh, It's about, Uh, sleepwalkers how europe went to war and it actually is a diplomatic history of what goes on in the foreign offices of these countries uh, at the turn of the century and then eventually in 1914 and it tells actually an incredible story incredible anecdotes that that gets into some of the political dynamics behind the scenes and and it actually exposes that it was not necessarily as lockstep as it had to be a lot of these agreements were far more flexible than they actually, that then the leaders themselves actually utilized them to be or understood them to be. So that, 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 that again, is something I can't emphasize enough. Um, but you're right. It's not just Germany, but Germany, of course, has a central role in it, too. Um, so then, so Michael, to your question, um, with, with the understanding that it was meant to be intentionally uh, humiliating and, and damning to, to Germany, um, uh, the, the treaty is laced with all kinds of restrictions and all kinds of of protocols uh, uh to demean Germany in every way possible. So maybe the first one I'll mention uh the infamous Article 231, uh known as the War Guilt Clause, uh, which forced Germany and Germany alone to take exclusive responsibility for the start of the First World War. Um uh and they do this to one and uh, when I say they, the victorious powers, do this to uh both humiliate Germany but also to justify my point to uh forcing Germany to pay exorbitant war reparations. War reparations were not new for this time. The kinds of reparations were not new in the world, world, uh, mi- world military history, but the kinds of war reparations that specifically France will demand uh, were new. Um, why, you ask, might France demand war reparations? Because Prussia, and then eventually Germany, demanded war reparations of France after the end of the Franco-Prussian War. Uh, so this was something that was very much in the minds of people like George Clemenceau, who actually fought and was was didn't fight actually he was a politician of a French politician uh, uh, at the start of the Third French Republic, but had a very clear memory and a very strong memory of what the Germans did to them, uh, did to France, and so therefore that was going to be one of his demands. Um, uh, And if you say that Germany, and if Germany agreed that they started the war, therefore then you get to charge whatever you want. Uh, The figure that was at the bottom of this particular clause was left blank. Uh, Germany had to sign it, and then the figure would be incorporated later. Uh, so obviously you wow. can make your own conclusions about that intention. Um, so that's a key point. Uh, territorial loss, both in Europe and overseas. Germany will eventually be forced to cede 14% of its pre-war European territory to either uh, rival powers or to the European League of Nations, uh, excuse me, to the, to the new uh, uh, World League of Nations that will come into being. Uh, it loses every one of its overseas colonies, colonies, whether it be it in Africa, be it in China, be it in the Pacific. Um, so that's an important component. Uh, and I could go on, but maybe just one last one, because it's, I think, something that people know about, but let's just put it in these terms. Uh, the German military was reduced substantially. Um, it went from, as I said, at the, at the end of the First World War, it had anywhere between 6.5 and 7 million soldiers activated in some capacity. Uh, it reduced it all the way down to a 100% uh, person standing army, a 100 man standing army, which completely made, which made it in, uh, completely impossible for Germany to launch any kind of offensive warfare. They were not allowed to have tanks. They were not allowed to have an air force. They were not allowed to have a navy. So it made it impossible for Germany to function as a military power. But as I think you're, you're probably going to lead to, it also made it incapable in some ways for it to have an, ec- uh, an economy uh, that yeah. actually could function uh, w- within uh, not just Europe, but also worldwide. Um, so these are just some of the issues we
0: could talk about, uh,
1: but were perhaps the most damning.
0: Yeah, I mean, this is this is what kills me. Like, I saw the numbers, um, you know, like 100,000 100, soldiers in seven infantry regiments. So you can't even you can't even form a division. Right. That at this point, which was the basic uh, maneuveral maneuver block for the large formations. Right uh you know three cavalry measurements 10 armored cars 10 <laughs> armored cars like and when i think armored cars i think of like the 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 really shitty Vauxhalls that you see on the streets in in like 21 and 22 in you know dublin and belfast during like the irish yeah. civil war right um you know and then the navy is was consisted of 33 36 surface ships no air force no submarines Right. And then the the surface ships, once I got to dig even more, they were they were limited in tonnage and armaments on deck, you know, and I was just like, wow. Like, so if something really popped off here, uh, Germany's just kind of left like, well, yeah, we we, we had a good go, guys. Uh, We'll just lay down and be a speed bump. Yeah,
1: Uh (laughs) Yeah. And, and, you know, Michael, I I, I don't want to get ahead of it at all, but I strongly suspect this is where something may come up later. But this was so bad. You saying those figures as well. This was so bad that eventually, and not long after, we're talking four or five years, no more than that, the victorious powers, the victorious entente powers, specifically in Great Britain, realized that yeah, this, was, this was way too strong. And so they tried to actually kind of rescind some of these, some of these uh, uh, restrictions. French politicians are hesitant to do so, but even some of them will eventually come on board a little bit later. But even, they, even their, the, the victorious powers will realize
0: this was such... uh uh, an egregious thing that they had done yeah and especially when we're already seeing that that soviet western europe divide right Right. and they're terrified especially when you have these these very charismatic speakers uh like leon trotsky like you already mentioned who literally his entire reason for being was the permanent revolution i am just going to travel country to country setting up soviets and you know, knocking over capitalism, right? Like, and you know, every politician in the UK and France, I mean, Italy, everybody's just like, please don't come here, please. You know, yeah. <laughs> like Germany was supposed to kind of be that bastion, and when you essentially geld it, you know, I can see why the governments were like, oh man, this is this was bad, guys. We we got a lot of bad more. Oh yeah,
1: but but you know, Michael, even even the way that uh, you know, this is an anecdote that maybe some people don't know. Even the way that that the victorious powers force uh, the German negotiators, if we could even call them that, to, to sign the treaty itself. Uh, so I should say more accurately to sign the armistice itself. Uh, 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 Matthias Erzberger is his name was a, a center, right. Well, center politician, um, who also happened to be Jewish, which is something that will eventually be held against him by, by reactionary forces later on, um, was the, was the man that unfortunately was kind of, uh, uh, forced, to uh, take this, drew the short straw to sign the armistice. Um, and what the French and, and British authorities force him to do is get on this very slow-moving train that, that leaves from Germany and eventually will go to, to the border region where this, where this treaty is signed. Um, and it purposely, the, the, the conductor was told to go as slow as possible through every battlefield that they come, they came into contact with. So they, so Erzberger would have to see and see the graves, see the, the, the disastrous uh, uh, effects of battle, to smell the corpses that were still there. Uh, turned up the heat as high as they could. Wouldn't feed him. So by the time he eventually arrives at uh, at this at the scene where he's supposed to to meet these individuals, not only is he is he really shaken but he's confronted with this reality that he gets no negotiation power whatsoever. Um, and he. Uh, uh, the story goes that when he eventually signs this armistice, he fainted because he realized that he had effectively turned over uh, everything he had ever believed in and he, what he knew the reaction would be in Germany. Uh, he turned it all over to, to an uncertain fate. Um, and eventually, uh, in spite of his, his horrific feelings about this. Uh, he is forever castigated um, uh, by by many Germans, not just members on the German uh, right, uh, but for many individuals for actually being the one to sign this document. And eventually himself, he himself was assassinated um, uh, for this, one of many that will be assassinated during this very chaotic period that you're talking about. So this is just, the, this is the armistice, just the lead up to Versailles. Yep. Um, and, and it really doesn't get any better at Versailles. Of course, there were no German negotiators there at all. They were just asked to eventually show up and sign when the time came uh, in in uh, the summer in specifically of June of nineteen nineteen so all of this factors in what you said
0: yeah I mean in in that those reparations uh, and I couldn't find a good number uh, for how much Germany actually paid out because the the few books I read there was a, a kind of like a sliding scale um, and then it was difficult for me to find a way to uh, just because, like, I don't know the right sites yet to, to do um, uh, the currency exchange between the old, like, Reichsmark to the new currency to what it would be in U.S. dollars now, right? But all, all any listener needs to know is that the reparations were crippling. Um, and it was a factor into the hyperinflation that really, really began to hit uh, Weimar Germany in around, what, 1921? So it, it really
1: begins, I would say, in earnest around that time, but it, reach its, it reaches its climax where it's just, it's completely, uh, just, it, it destroys the entire society in 1923. 1923 okay. will prove to be the pivotal year where this, this affects everything. But it, it certainly is going on in 1921, but it becomes a, a full-on crisis in 1923.
0: Okay, so like like I had just mentioned, we had the Reichsmark under the Kaiser. Was it just the mark at this point? Uh, was that the new currency for, for Weimar? Was still... It was still the Reichsmark. Okay. Still the Reichsmark. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yes. So let's let's talk about like this hyperinflation because, like I said, I remember the the picture of the woman with her wheelbarrow full of of Reichsmarks going to a market just to buy bread before the new exchange came out, and like she lost even more, uh, uh you know, worth to this currency. But it wasn't just. Um, the the reparations this you know that that financial indemnity that germany had to pay right um it, it, it there was some other factors too um and one of the ones i found was they couldn't find enough jobs for people so the government was just like fuck it we're going to print money hmm? and that's what they did <laughs> <laughs> uh,
1: they will print money to be sure and and uh you know <laughs> this is as you you rightfully say michael uh will in my opinion, there's, there's nothing monocausal in history in general, but specifically in the history we're talking about here. But the economic catastrophes that will face Germany will ultimately, I, I think, be the most significant thing that will, will lead to its undoing that we're going to be talking about. But, but maybe, maybe to put this in some specific terms. Um, so the, the reparation payments were, as you say, crippling in every way that you could possibly describe it. And it was meant to be so. One more little, little addendum I would add to that. Um, according to the Treaty of Versailles, if Germany was ever in a position where it failed to make payments, that therefore authorized the Belgian and the uh, the Belgian and uh, French uh, governments to send in soldiers to the economically rich—I uh, should say more accurately—industrially rich uh, 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 region known as the Ruhrgebiet, uh, the the Ruhr district, yeah. uh, in what is Western Germany today. Uh, and if they couldn't get, if they wouldn't, rec- if they couldn't receive their payments in, in forms of money, they would take it in form of resources. So coal and steel, anything they produce there. And this will eventually uh, be, uh, th- this will eventually happen in 1923, which is what, what I was kind of alluding to uh, a second ago. But before we get there, what leads to the, the horrific hyperinflation that, that you're talking about, maybe some of the listeners have heard of before, before we get there, we have what was known as a deflationary spiral. All right. So this is what eventually will lead to this whole situation. So during the years we're talking about here, 1920, but specifically 1921, 1922, um, employment, price, demand, profits, all of those, those, those signature elements of, of economics 101, all of those go down in value. You know, as you say, oper- not necessarily value, but opportunities to have jobs, uh, what people are being paid, etc. But the only thing that goes up in that scenario was actually the value of currency. So there was less currency out there. So people, what were they doing, as you might expect? They were hoarding it, yeah. all right? So this is what then ultimately leads the government, not only just to try and find jobs for people anywhere they can. They were very unsuccessful in doing that. Their idea was instead of of, of really you know doing what will eventually become an, an, an element of the New Deal a decade later, let's just print off as much money as we can. Because if we print off money, that will actually decrease the value of money, and then in theory people will start spending it and maybe that will be the kickstart to the economy. The problem here, and this is what gets the hyperinflation aspect of this, they never stop running the printing presses, all right? So as you say, there is no one excellent way to to put this in in an actual literal term or or, or currency uh, uh, exchange. But the, the best one I've seen and the best kind of calculus I've come to in my own research on this over the years is by November of 1923, for every one U.S. dollar, uh, you would receive 4.2 trillion German marks. Oh all right. So that is, to your point, a wheelbarrow full of money. You're essentially saying it's, it's worthless. There's no value to it whatsoever, um, other than using it as wallpaper or as kindling, for instance. Right. So that you can't have a functioning society without an economy, yeah. without a, with, without value, without worth, without employment. Um, and it's not it shouldn't be a surprise then that November and I should say the fall, the summer and fall of 1923, why uh, we see kind of a rebirth, if you will, of, of horrific violence. Violence doesn't go away. I don't want to give the impression that it goes away in 1920 or 1921. There's assassinations, unfortunately, all over the place. It wasn't quite the level of 1919 and and the spring and and, and summer of 1919, but it gets absolutely back to there, back to that point in the fall of 1923, primarily as the result of uh, a a non-functioning economy and foreign occupation in the West.
0: Yeah, I think the the very um, (laughs) just like shocking statistic was Um, by 1922, 200 factories were making the paper that went into being becoming banknotes. Like, (laughs) what? I mean, can you imagine being like one of the line workers there? Like, well, we're going to get this paper down the line. It's going to be printed on. It's going to be cut. We're going to be paid at the end of our shift. And then literally the next shift is going to have to print off more just so we get our day's wage, you know? Like, I
1: think, and we just, we think about it in these terms and, and it's, it's terrifying to think of. And I, you know, uh, I, I don't want to go too far off the field here, but, but, you know, we, we think about this, you know, Michael, you and I, in our lives have, have gone through two pretty scary so far, two pretty scary economic, uh, catastrophes. Um, I was coming right out of, uh, college when the first one happened in 2008, 2009. Um, and, and. You know, I, I think about this history often uh, in those terms. I think, and it's fair to do it. It's fair to think about those comparisons. I think.
0: Yeah, I, it's it's important that we like. Is if you're a history fan, like I, I have a ranking. I'm a double A historian. I have a bachelor's degree. If you have a master's, you're a triple A historian. And if you have your PhD, you're you're in the big leagues, right? Like even as a double, like anybody who calls themselves a historian needs to realize, you know, history it's not just dates and times, it's, it's economic factors. It's, it's all these, you know, it's a, it's a myriad of things. And especially now when we're in the midst of like this weird kind of, uh, you know, this weird stage of capitalism where, you know, we're producing less and we're leaning on service industry more and things are becoming more and more automated. Like what is the next step? Uh, and for me, I look at that and I'm like, this isn't, this is, this is not going to be pretty either. Uh, but a lot of people will tell me, Hey man, you're, you're, you're being kind of doomer, but I'm like, listen, Oh, eight was bad. Okay. Yeah. These things don't get better as <laughs> the more they hit, you know,
1: <laughs>
0: it's, it's scary stuff and it's important to be aware of it. Yes. I'm, I'm with you. Okay. So we, we we're, we we are going through this horrible hyperinflation. Um, you know, and, and we've seen from the end of the war into the early Weimar years, political instability was like the national pastime of Germany at this point. Right. Like like you said, there's no work. Um, there's a lot of political angst. You know, you have, you know, like you said, a growing communist party, but you have a pretty staunch social democratic party, um, you know, that are facing off against reactionary, you know, who they would identify as reactionaries, you know, and they're not they're not talking. Right. This this isn't like a little Twitter tiff. These people are actually in the streets beating the snot out of each other and killing each other, right? Um, but, you know, we had a, a Soviet pop up in Munich. Um, and then, you know, we have the COP, the I think the COP push where 12,000 Freikorps members took over the buildings of the Reichstag and installed Wolfgang Kopp as the new leader of the country. And it would only last four days, but, you oh. know, we're, we're seeing a lot of, these groups that are just like forget it, we're not going to deal with it anymore. We're going to take, uh, you know, we're going to seize the means of government for us. Um, like how, you know, how did that hit such a fever pitch? Was it just everything we've been talking about, or were a lot of these groups opportunistic and saw like kind of the disarray in the country and felt that they, you know, they could seize power and and do things better?
1: There was certainly some opportunism, I would say, but I think it was really a reaction. Uh, you know some some lingering memories of, some of these groups, primarily hypernationalists, members of the military, uh, the Freikorps, they never do go away during this period. Of course, all of that is key. But 1923 again is when it really seems like all of this is coming to a head, both internally and externally. And I'll will say a little about that in just a second. But uh, you have the French and the Belgians um, in the Rhineland. Excuse me. Well, in 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 the Ruhrgebiet and in some cases parts of the Rhineland. Uh, you have an economy that is in shambles. You have increasingly. Uh, uh, it's, I would I would argue that it's not a majority yet by any means, but in, you have an increasing number of people in society that are are looking at this government as as something that maybe isn't isn't stable, isn't something that actually could follow through with its promises. The the the, the hope and the euphoria of a democratic potential has long since gone away by 1923. So there's questions about what this government is promising. Uh, But then, of course, you have um, external pressures and external threats as well. You obviously have a a shambling economy, but uh, you have external pressures as well. Um, uh, And I'm thinking specifically here of not just uh, uh, continued, by 1923 still, continued um, uh, stonewalling on on the part of of the British and the French of of renegotiating any elements of the treaties, Um, but also uh, the fact that you have what we could call very reactionary and ultimately ultra right-wing movements already successful in parts of Europe. Uh, by this point, uh, Benito Mussolini and the fascists uh, were in control of Italy, uh, not fu- not quite yet for a full year, but that movement started and was ultimately successful in 1922. Um, you see similar movements in Hungary by this point, though not entirely successful yet. Uh, you see clamorings in other parts of Eastern Europe. Um, and so there's a sense that this is that there's a potential for success if we maybe rise up now is the time uh, and so i think that's a really important thing to understand that these 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 a multitude of factors were, were influencing the movements of these actors and, and if i just may say a brief word about wolfgang wolfgang cop uh, since you mentioned him uh this 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 is both a uh this both stands as a sign that Weimar was in trouble at this time, but also a sign that it was not doomed to failure. Uh, Wolfgang Kopp was kind of this center-right politician, uh, was kind of a member of, a, of a, what you would call him a corporatist, I think, today, um, uh, and was seen as a figure that might be a, a, a somebody that could bring uh, various coalitions together once he was in power, political coalitions once he was in power. So the Freikorps rise up against um against the German government in the spring of 1923 in the face of all of these calamities. And as you say, it was successful. It actually succeeded in forcing the German government uh, to abandon Berlin for four days. Um, but this gets to my point about it not being doomed to inevitable failure. If that was the case, everybody would know the name Wolfgang Kapp because he represented all of these forces that eventually, unfortunately, Adolf Hitler will come to represent. Of course, Adolf Hitler, Hitler represents a lot of other things. Um, but, but many of the same supporters uh, of both will, 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 of Hitler will eventually support Kopp. Um, but what brings him down is not some foreign intervention, is not uh, Friedrich Ebert or others bringing in a military. It's mass protest. People in Berlin and in parts of the country just say, fine, I'm not going to work. They protest. They picket uh, traffic lines. They, they, they picket metro lines. They they bring the government and ultimately the city to a halt. And as a result of this, the whole thing falls apart. The cop, uh, the, the putsch uh, falls apart. And he eventually is forced to flee to Sweden. He'll have to stay for a couple of years. Uh, or for, for a period of time, excuse me. And then eventually the, the Weimar government will come back into being. So this is a sign. This was successful. This could have been successful if only because people didn't want to see reactionaries from one side of the political spectrum or the other coming into power. And I think this is a good sign of it.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the interesting thing is like I, uh, Germans, you know, at this point knew, uh, how to, how to use the, the mass movement to, to, to get, to meet, to meet their political, you know, wants and aims. Um, you know, and this, this happens in 1923 and I, we would be remiss, um, if we did not talk about a certain someone and the Beer Hall Putsch in that same year, uh, man, uh, a man, an Austrian corporal, who would go on to uh, become radicalized in such a way that uh, he would use uh, a, a ridiculously charismatic way of speaking uh, to the German people, playing on their fears, as well as being a fearmonger himself, to become uh, the Fuhrer, uh, and, and he would rule over Germany for around 12 years. Uh, but 1923 was the start of what we would know. Uh, well, that, that would be the start of his term in, the, in what would become the Nazi Party. Um, and now I think it's important that we do this. We, we, I, I want to get this out of the way. Uh, people are like, the Nazis, you know, they're democratic socialists. Well, Hitler has written, and there are primary sources to say he latched on that to make sure he kept people in the party while he was rebuilding it. He had no, there was no socialist bone in that man's body.
1: Uh. (laughs) Uh, Michael, this is one of my bailiwicks that I bring up uh, in my classes, and, and I haven't written about this extensively yet, but certainly in all my classes. It's one of the greatest misnomers that we've seen kind of pop up and emerge, I would say, only within the last decade, which incidentally tells you all you need to know um and moreover it's almost exclusively uh isolated to the united states yes um uh it's it's something that you do not hear that in most other places that nazism was was in any way at all affiliated with the german left Uh, and i say this not Due to any of my own political uh, 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 affiliations or or sympathies, but this a basic fact. This is a basic fact. Uh, Nazism uh, uh, formed exclusively. It was the antithesis of communism. It saw itself as the antithesis of communism um, uh, in its very charters, in its twenty-five point plan, and in it, all of its programming. Um, um, uh, yes, it also, in its mind, was the antithesis of Judaism. Um, uh, its version of what they, uh, of what Nazis saw as Judaism, um, but look no further than the fact that they conflated them both together. They referred to it as Judeo-Bolshevism. Um, uh, w- nonsense, of course, laced in racism and bigotry, uh, myths that unfortunately still, uh, in some circles, still exist. Um, but but it, it's it's nothing more than a trope that exists today to score. Uh, political points in certain uh, uh, in certain demographic, not demographics, but in certain um,
0: uh, regions and in certain circles, I would say. Yeah. Um, not a, not an element of truth to it at all. Yeah, I see. Like, I, I think this is important. This is why this is why we do this. Damn it. OK, we, we need to start. We, we got to start popping these bubbles so people can learn. Right. Um, you may not like me, but we're throwing out some good information today. Uh, I'm re- like I'm, I'm telling you, Dr. Wagner. This one was this one was heavy. I learned a, a ton, but just sifting through everything kind of was like. <laughs> but I mean, they, you know, there's there's a lot going on in, in Weimar. But like after 23, you saw things kind of start to stabilize. Yeah. Um, you know, and a, a man by Gustav Stresemann. Uh, would become Reichskanzler for 100 days, and then he would become the foreign minister, and he implemented certain policies to kind of show the world that, hey, we are a stable, functioning republic, and we are ready to, you know, kind of take our place on the stage. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, what were some of these, you know, reforms and policies that he implemented that that kind of, you know, stabilized the republic?
1: Sure. Well, the most important thing... Rezeman does, in my opinion. He does a lot of things. Um, But the most important thing he is a part of is something that comes to be known as the Locarno Treaties, the the Locarno Negotiations. Those formally are adopted in 1925. Negotiations begin in 1924. Um, uh, And he he starts this while in his capacity both as consul, but also as as eventually foreign minister. Uh, But this is something he eventually will negotiate with his counterparts in Uh, Specifically in France and in England. So uh, he, alongside Austin Chamberlain, uh, the foreign minister in in Great Britain, uh, and the French foreign minister Aristide Briand um, uh, sign, as I said, what comes to be known as the Locarno Treaties. Uh, And what this does, there's a couple elements with this. Uh, in exchange for Germany agreeing to the Western borders as they were in 1925. So, in other words, pledging that, for instance, Alsace-Lorraine would forevermore be known as French. That, in other words, Germany would never again uh, launch an aggressive war in exchange for that. Uh, the, British agree, the British and the French agreed to welcome Germany back into, if you will, the world of nations. They would begin uh, trading with them more favorably, and, and uh, negotiations could now begin on maybe easing some of the, the economic uh, restrictions and, and demands in the Treaty of Versailles and so many other things. Um, and so this is, is really the first stage. These treaties really be uh, open up the first moment when you start to see uh, negotiations again really um, uh, taking over um, and and making life uh, possi- making the possibility of life um, uh, uh, getting better in Germany. And and that absolutely is the case, most especially economically. So that's one thing that happens. Uh, the other thing that uh, Briand will uh, excuse me. The other thing that uh, Stresemann. Uh, will will be a part of uh, in some official capacities uh, what comes to be known as the Dawes Plan, uh, and then subsequently thereafter it's it's uh, uh, the what inherits the Dawes Plan plan something known as the Young Plan, uh, and the Dawes Plan was named after uh, uh, a man by the name of Charles Dawes who was an American banker and businessman, uh, and what this plan effectively did, if I may just paint it in its most simplistic uh, possible way. Um, now that Germany was a member of the world of nations once again, the United States would agree to loan Germany X number of dollars, whatever it needed for on a monthly basis, on an annual, on a yearly basis, etc. Germany would then use those funds to pay, to make its reparation payments primarily to France and Great Britain. Great Britain and France would take that, those funds and pay back the United States all of the money it loaned from it. Before the United States entered the First World War and even during it. So that may sound like a cyclic or like a, a, a cyclical thing that makes zero sense. And in, in maybe actual literal dollar terms, it doesn't make any sense because the United States, in essence, was just getting back what it what it loaned. But what did it allow the world to do? It allowed the world economy to function, right? Um, and that's ultimately what will be successful. Everybody was in theory benefiting from the world. Uh, continuing on in this economic economic way, so this is a very long way to make the point, Michael. This was yes, uh, Stresemann and, and many others were 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 working toward improving the livelihood and and ultimately the the situation of Germany, but it was really actually an international program too.
0: Yeah, I mean that's the thing. Uh, you know, politics aside, I think we all know war is a racket, uh, especially the First World War. Um, like we're literally seeing American banks giving money so it can be cycled back just to go back to the U.S. government. Like, come on. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's it's, that, it's pretty it's it's pretty amazing if you think about it. Yeah, it's Smedley Butler said it best. Okay, um, it it really is a racket. Um, but you know we we you know we're we're seeing you know they're they're a member of the you know the, this group of nations now. They can start trading. You know we're we're going to make sure we're getting money pumped back into the economy. And then you see this, you know, I, I think this is something that we need to really discuss as well. Just the culture of Weimar, the music scene and the art scene was out of control. You saw it kind of become, you know, Berlin became this hub of just a, a very vibrant kind of like, uh, I don't, I think calling it a club scene is is demeaning it a bit. Um, but, you know, you 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 saw like people were starting to come, you know, travel to Berlin to take part in all this, uh, you know, and you already, like you already said, you, you know, maybe, maybe it wasn't, uh, you know, as as liberal it is now. But you know, if you were uh, LGBTQ plus, you know, you could go out and be yourself. You know, there were places for you to be safe. Uh, you know, but let's let's talk a little bit about the culture of Weimar. You know, like it, you know, like we like I mentioned, you know, we some people have watched a television show on Netflix, and that's what they know about it, but. You know, let's expound on it a little bit.
1: Yeah. Uh, well, the television, just to start, the television show you're referring to is the famous Babylon Berlin, uh, which I think is excellent. And uh, I strongly recommend uh, anyone out there to, to watch it. Um, it's available in a number of, of uh, sites. I think Netflix is among them. Yes. Um, I can't emphasize it enough. Does it paint? Weimar in a, in a slightly romanticized way, absolutely, but it act, I also think at the same time it, it does a really good job of getting at some of what you're talking about and hinting to, Michael, and what I want to talk about here. Weimar culture. This is why I love this history. This is why I really like talking about Weimar. It's not just the high politics stuff, but what we're talking about at the cultural, social level, at the, the nitty-gritty, and again, admittedly, primarily big cities like Berlin is what something that really really captivates my interests. Um, but but really everywhere. Opportunities, an egalitarian system suddenly ushers in a wave of, of optimism, and, and people from across the political spectrum, people from across social society, from across social classes really embrace this. Uh, and I think you can't, you have to begin with women. Um, you know, this is when you start to see it. It's not just isolated to Germany, but again, you know, notions of the new woman start to emerge. Um, and by no means, Michael, am I going to mansplain this? Uh, but I mean, what we're, what that really means is everything that, that uh, maybe jumps to mind of, uh, of, of, of women that we see some of the popularized images, either in the United States at this time or, or elsewhere. in, in, in parts of the global North, at least um, uh, uh, women suddenly having um, uh, uh, there's not it's not a taboo to be alone uh, in, in a social setting. Um, you can, uh, drink alcohol, uh, uh, more freely where it's more accepting. You can, you can smoke, uh, you can wear different styles of clothing. You can go out to nightclubs. Uh, it's not necessarily seen as a, as a negative thing if you're not married or as again, accompanied by a man. So uh, you, you of course can be proud of your profession. You don't necessarily have to think that you only are, uh, uh, if you, if you, if you do have a job that your main job is still in the, in the so-called home, right? So all of these things, I think women embrace and really, become the most vibrant and, I think, essential members of of, of this society, most especially politically. Um, uh, much like today, and I think a lot of ways, women will be by far and away the largest demographic that will vote uh, uh, during the Weimar system. So women, you mentioned the LBTQ uh, uh, plus committee, or excuse me, community, um, a man by the name of uh, Dr. Magnus Hirschfeld uh, will at this time uh, run what at the time Uh, is the, uh, to my knowledge at least, the only certified, authorized institute for sexual uh, research. Um, Magnus Hirschfeld uh, uh, is a sexologist in this time, uh, uh, and does some incredible work, uh, both not just from a a scientific uh, mindset or scientific approach, if you will, but far more accurately, getting out the truth that um, uh, homosexuality is not something that should be considered taboo at all or some kind of unique or, or vile element of, of, of life. It is, is a perfectly natural uh, um, uh, element of life that we all should accept and understand. He so does an incredible amount of, of effort trying to get out exhibits in society, writes books. Uh, he is a, a, a prominent and a prolific Uh, movie maker, uh, puts out all kinds of documentaries about this. In many cases, some of his own patients agree to participate as actors uh, and actresses in in, um, uh, uh, these films. And they have a profound impact on society. Uh, uh, He's a very quotable guy, one of my favorite uh, that he issues during this time period. Again, this folks, this is 1922. He says, soon the day will come when science will win a victory over error, justice, a victory over injustice, and human love of victory over human hatred and ignorance. This sounds like something I like to think you would hear today, right? So, this, so, so, as you say, Michael, this is—I don't want to give the sense—I don't want to give the uh, 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 the idea that everything is tolerated, uh, but certainly more in Weimar than most places in the world. Um, you have Thomas Mann, you have Marlene Dietrich, you have three penny operas. Is obviously—I uh, mean, you have. This is a society that. Um, uh, i think uh, is is an exciting place to be uh and it's an open place it's it's a, a culturally vibrant um that when he uh, subsequently long after the weimar republic uh, crashes i'm uh, living in new york when he writes about weimar this is what he's talking about he's talking about this kind of society politically socially and otherwise um uh, i mean it's it's just It's a place that I find to be incredibly interesting and uh, worth talking about for all of these reasons, and so many more that I didn't even mention here.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's that's the thing. Like we we, we've literally went through like all the the political instability, the hyperinflation, you know, all these bad things, and uh, you know, that's what people kind of equate Weimar to, but they don't realize that you know it it wasn't perfect by any stretch of the imagination, but it was much more open than probably damn near all of its contemporary nations yeah. at that time.
1: Um,
0: yeah. You know, I, I think that's saying something. I, I think that's an important thing to bring up because, like, this, again, this goes back to what we were talking about. It didn't have to take that weird right turn. This could have been a very open and beautiful and very welcoming country um, if it wasn't for, you know, the continued, I, I, I would say, political you know, continued political instability and just, uh, and some other things we're going to talk about right now. <laughs> this, this, is, this is what I, this part, uh, unfortunately, uh, I called the end of Weimar. So, uh, you know, we, we see Weimar getting back on its feet, but then we see the Great Depression strike. And um, like Dr. Blackler already alluded to, we had the Dawes plan, which sent American banking money to Germany, which in turn was flipped around to France and the United Kingdom, which in turn was flipped back around to the United States government. Um, well, what do you think happens when the world economy collapses? Banks are no longer loaning money. Um, and as we've seen, that was, a, uh, that was a direct like conduit into the, the Weimar economy was that, that American banking money. So naturally, we see a downturn. And in 1930... Uh, the World War One hero Paul von Hindenburg, uh, man had a great mustache. Uh, started, he's, he becomes president, right? Or or shortly shortly before that, right? Dr. Blackler. Um, yeah, Paul von Hindenburg, his first
1: term he began in 1925, and then he was okay. reelected in 1932.
0: Okay, so in, but in 1930 we see him start giving emergency powers to a string of chancellors, starting with Heinrich Brüning. Um, why did Hindenburg grant those powers, um, to, to these, these chancellors when, like you said, Hindenburg's kind of like a larger than life figure here. Um, you know, he's, he's still very respected. Why wasn't he more directly involved with, I guess, trying to steer the ship through the depression?
1: Let me give a non rambling answer because I could honestly talk about this for three hours. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, so the nutshell of it, um, The Weimar system was working decently well, as as the so-called golden era, we'll say 1924, uh, up until 1929, until the economic crash. We've already covered that when the the American banking money's gone, that that destabilizes Germany once again for for the second time in a decade. All right. So as you can understand by this point, even diehard supporters of the Weimar system, regardless of their political affiliation, We're really now starting to have doubts. This is, you know, again, the the second time in a decade, right? Um, Questioning the stability and the governance of the system. So that's number one. Number two, during times of economic crisis, this is not a controversial statement, then and now. During times of economic crisis, that's when you primarily do to fear. Not individuals, but mass groups of people, all right? Oftentimes dismiss logic uh, and look for, easier answers. And I don't mean to dismiss people as as sheep or or not thinking people, but out of fear, they look for people that might provide an answer that that actually will solve their problems. And there are very real problems going on in Weimar Germany at this time. All right. So what that means is you start to see a significant ebbing Uh, In what we can maybe call the traditional status quo political parties by 1920. And you could say it even started almost a year earlier, but specifically 1929 and going uh, going uh, forward. So the SPD starts to lose support. Uh, the, the German Democratic uh, People's Party uh, uh, by this point had really lost a lot of support, but it goes away. The German People's Party goes away. Uh, the, the, the German National People's Party, th- there are quite literally 50, 60 political parties I could go through. But these were more status quo parties for this period in time. They start to just, sh- just shed support, and the support, uh, their, their supporters, and they go increasingly to the extremes of the political spectrum. So... Uh, on the, on the SPD side and, and other leftist parties will increasingly look to the German communist party and on the extreme right side, the national socialist German workers party, the Nazi party. And I know we haven't spent a lot of time talking about that, about them. And I'm just fine with that because I don't like to talk about Nazis. I do. Yeah. It's important, but you know what I mean? Um, the Nazi Party, uh, as you hinted, uh, hinted to, Michael, uh, was founded in February of 1920, all right? Hitler was not the leader when he founded it. He was a pr- chief propagandist uh, uh, of it. Eventually, he'll become the leader, and it goes from there, all right? Um, uh, after the Beer Hall Putsch, which we alluded to, didn't talk about, we won't hear. Uh, Hitler is put in jail. The Nazism is effectively banned as a political institution uh, through a whole series of court finaglings and the fact that uh, there were a lot of sympathetic judges at that time, um, uh, holdovers from the Kaiserreich. Uh, they are able to kind of weasel their way through the system. Nazism is allowed to reinstate itself as, an, as a national political party in 1927. It's still, Hitler still is actually not allowed to speak publicly in a lot of places for a while. That is eventually <laughs> lifted in 1928. Um, but its fundamental goal as a political party from 1925 until 1930. Was to cast itself as a catch-all party, promise anything to everybody. We're not gonna. We're, we're gonna speak to you all as Germans. And this may sound kind of surprising, kind of kind of amazing if you think about it in an egalitarian system. But most political parties at this time in Germany focused only on its demographic supporters, its demographics or its ideological supporters. So the SPD spent most of its time in in cities and in, in industrial regions, uh, whereas more, maybe we'll say center-right parties, went into the rural areas, talk, spoke to farmers, spoke to, to, to soldiers, that kind of thing. Nazis were unabashed. They talked to everybody. We'll, we'll do whatever you want. In 1928, when the first time they were allowed to participate in a federal election, uh, April of 1928, it captured 2.8% of the vote. So promising everything to everybody did nothing for them. They were a, a, a minuscule party that, did, that today wouldn't even uh, meet the threshold to serve in a German government. Two years later, two years later, after it's so a year after the Great Depression, so in, in, in April of 1930, the next federal election, it captured 18.6 percent of the vote. It vaulted from a nothing party to the second largest party in the entire system. And this gets smack dab to your question about ruining, um, Michael. Uh, when it captured that much of the vote, there was impossible. Or because of ideological problems and all kinds of things that, that were going on at that time politically. It was impossible for a coalition government to come together, all right? So a clause in the Weimar Constitution, Article 48 is actually what it was. In extreme circumstances, the president, so not the, not the chancellor, the chancellor is the head of the Reichstag, the president of the country, was allowed to temporarily appoint a chancellor, Who would then, who would in theory be able to rule by decree, uh, so long as the president signed off on it. But this was meant to be a temporary thing. That chancellor was supposed to call for new elections in the hope that the next election would yield a coalition style government. All right? So Bruning was the first in a long line of individuals that will be put in charge of trying to do that. But effectively, from 1930 until eventually the end of the Weimar Republic, everything that happens politically is through decree because all of these elections prove to be one shamble after the next, primarily because the Nazis increasingly gain more and more support, save the very last election, but it becomes the largest party, but no one will go into coalition with the Nazis, but they won't go into coalition unless Hitler will be declared chancellor. And so you have stagnate, not stagnation, you have complete obstruction uh, and, and, just a, a a a wrenching of the brakes of government that falls apart.
0: See, that's, that's crazy. I didn't realize that. Like the, I, I didn't get into the weeds on like the actual functioning of the Weimar government, you know, the different levers of power, because I was just like, then, you know, you and I would be sitting here for nine hours talking about this. And uh, yeah. I don't, I don't think anybody wants to hear me talk, no. especially for nine no, hours. Not me. <laughs> no one wants uh, to hear me. You know, <laughs> Um, but I mean, we so we we see these these chancellors that are trying to form governments, right? And that's that's why they have these emergency powers. But during Brunig's, uh you know, his his I guess his emergency term, you know, he began this policy of devaluation, which forced the, forcing the prices of good rents and wages to be dropped by twenty percent. Um, you know, they were using this to to fight back against. Uh, you know, that that economic destabilization again, like you said, the second one in in less than a decade. Um, But I mean, did that work to to stabilize the economy or did it continue to to fall?
1: No, Uh, the German economy was in a shambles um, and it primarily had to do with the fact that, you know, still some of the strictures of Versailles were in place. Every element that had proved to be proven to be successful, the economic elements of the Locarno treaties, but again, specifically the Dawes plan and the Young plan, all of that was gone all of the, all of the, the, the safety net that provided was gone um, and so again you see as, as you mentioned a, 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 a disastrous impact on unemployment um, or I should say a disastrous a disastrous impact on employment leading to increased unemployment um, uh, all of this of course meant uh, just again a continuation of the crises that had plagued Germany uh, a, a decade before um, supply shortages food problems um access uh, uh, to everything from to, to healthcare to you, you name it, every, again, element that uh, uh, underscores a society. Um, and as, as these numbers increasingly got worse and worse and worse, coupled with the fact that the government seemingly was doing nothing because it was, it was uh, gridlocked as a result of these elections, people increasingly lost support and faith in this system. So uh, uh, as I mentioned, the the April 30, 1930 election, uh, the Nazis gained eighteen point three percent of the vote. The next, lar- the the only party larger larger was the SPD, but it wasn't large enough to. there weren't yeah. other leftist parties that were going were large enough to go in coalition with them. So the next election that comes into being to to, to this point, Michael, uh, is in April of nineteen thirty two. Um, Bruning decides to give it up, um, and uh, uh, Paul von Hindenburg leans on a person by the name. Of Franz von Papen, he appoints him as chancellor and says, you call for an election in April of 1932. This proves to be the most disastrous one, Michael. Um, this is the election that the Nazis uh, will receive their highest percentage of a vote in a free and fair election. Uh, they receive 37.4 percent of the vote. So just an astronomical yeah. percentage. Um, uh, but nevertheless, not enough to, to get them fully or exclusively into power um franz von Papen has to rule by decree uh eventually he will call for yet another election If this is getting repetitive i apologize but this gives you if you're exasperated just imagine how a german citizen felt at this time yeah <laughs> uh, that also incidentally was a presidential election and paul von hindenburg defeated hitler in that election pretty substantially but the nazi party nevertheless was the biggest winner in that election so for what it's worth Uh, The the last election that will occur uh, in a free society, um, November of 1932, um, Franz von Poppen uh, is defeated mightily. Um, The Nazi vote percentage goes down a little bit, but is still by far and away the largest uh, um, party. And so Paul von Hindenburg appoints a man by the name of Kurt von Schleicher uh, to be the new chancellor, um, who was, uh, uh, I would say, a member of, uh, definitely a firm member of the political right, but also was a military man. Paul von Hindenburg knew him in that capacity. And his strategy was if he appointed Schleicher as chancellor, maybe he could peel off some, if it's possible to imagine, more leftist elements of the, German, uh, of the Nazi party, um, which fails miserably. But this was yeah. the strategy behind it. <laughs> so this is all the way to make the point, the economic situation doesn't get better at all during these years and it only leads to an increased, destabilized political and social
0: system. Yes, and and you already brought the man up, uh, uh, Kurt Von Schleicher. Um, it, that was, literally, I had him brought up in the notes, and then how his plans <laughs> for coalition government seemed really far-fetched. Uh, and you already, you already hit the nail on the head with that one. Let's try and peel off leftist elements of the Nazi party. Mm-hmm. Okay, dude. Um, but... <laughs> but you know this is this is a segue into essentially the end of weimar right um and and the way it was always taught to me was von hindenburg was just tired of hearing from hitler and 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 the party like no you know what you're getting all these votes you can't form a government by yourself because you won't go into coalition with with other parties you know i got to do something to make this guy shut up so you can be the vice chancellor Right. That's how it was taught to me. That's how that's what I got from it. So this, that's a, there's a lot of
1: it, a lot in there, Michael. Uh, this is actually, for me, probably the saddest moment of all of this whole thing. Um, after even though the Nazi Party was still the largest party in Weimar uh, in November of 1932, after this that election, uh, it was seen as actually a disaster because the Nazis thought they were only going to continue to gain more votes they had reached their threshold, and I think that's a very important thing to understand. Not only was the Nazis' threshold in a free and fair election, let's just let's just round up and say 38%, Yeah, I would go so far as to say the overwhelming majority of those folks that voted for the Nazis were not doing so because they were vehemently anti-Semitic, uh, or because they wanted a Holocaust, or because they wanted even a Second World War. They were doing it because this The answers seem to be plausible, maybe one a one uh, issue voter or they were disgruntled with with another maybe center right party. It was in some respect, in some respects, a protest vote. All right. So I think it's important to actually try and decipher what that percentage is. Um, But in spite of that, their vote goes down to thirty three point one percent in November of 1932. So it was a disaster. It was interpreted interpreted as such. You had newspapers in Germany and elsewhere foreign press, New York Times saying this is the end of the Nazi movement. It reached its high point. He, he bit off more than he can chew. He should have taken uh, Hitler, that is, should have taken Schleicher's offer to be the vice chancellor in 1932 because he's not going to get in November of 1932 because he's not going to get that offer again. It's yeah. done. All right. That is over. Um, and Hitler went into a depression. And this is a very real thing that understand. What ends up happening is, is this gets to von Papen that you mentioned. Poppen was really upset that Hindenburg dismissed him as chancellor. He wanted uh, another chance. And so what comes to be known as uh, the Backstairs Conspiracy, he convinces Hindenburg that if he appointed, if, if, if they really conditioned uh, a Hitler chancellorship, uh, i.e., if uh, von Poppen was, was, had to be vice-chancellor, if the, if the coalition government that comes, comes into being, if the coalition was made up by a minority Number of Nazis. So, in other words, if a majority of the coalition were other political parties, the idea was they could control Hitler from within, and that was the greatest miscalculation that was probably ever made uh, politically. Um, Because what ends up happening, this convinces Hindenburg that he actually might be We might be able to actually control him more easily inside the circle than outside. Um, And so, when Hitler gets into power, uh, uh, that did not necessarily mean even then that Weimar was doomed to failure. I would say two months after that, it was doomed to failure. But uh, what ends up really being the disaster, Michael, um, is uh, a couple of things. The Reichstag fire, number one, that takes place in February of 1933, so not even a full month after Hitler was chancellor. Uh, he used it as an opportunity to, to basically declare martial law uh, and to convince not just Hindenburg, but the Reichstag, to give him uh, uh, emergency powers uh, that basically suspended the Constitution. Uh, and if he was able to rule by decree, what did that mean? He got to basically dictate uh, what happened politically, but seemingly from a position of legality. All right. So the famous Star Wars uh, quote, uh, uh, the democracy ended uh, to the sound of, of applause.
0: Yeah. Thunderous uh, applause. And was,
1: <laughs> yeah. And that was in, in many respects what happened here. And there's so many other things I could bring up. But I don't want to, to, to ramble on. Um, but that was really the, the, the one of the saddest elements of this. Um, that it it didn't have to fail in this way and it didn't have to fail at all, and yet it did. Uh, and then of course the catastrophe that that comes is is well known.
0: Yes, uh, and that, that that's that's uh, you know I, I'd like to say this is where we're going to cut it off, but we literally have no choice uh, because you know like you said w- with with Hitler seizing the the reins of power, that was the end of Weimar essentially. Um, you know, and we saw kind of like a backlash against that that free and and uh, very vibrant Weimar, uh, golden age, uh, with, with the implementation of, uh, you know, Nazi rule throughout Germany. Yeah. 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 And that's kind of, that's kind of a downer everybody. And I apologize for that, but that's, that's the, that's how it shakes out sometimes. But Dr. Blackler, thank you so much for coming on. Is there anything you'd like to plug? Oh, well, thank you, Michael. Uh, I will just say that's very
1: kind of you. Um, you introduced me at the very beginning as actually I'm a historian of uh, Germany's colonial empire, something that's actually being discussed a lot uh, these days, given everything that's going on with Namibia and Germany seemingly saying that they're going to uh, that they've <laughs> acknowledged genocide, but kind of sorta, kind of they, sorta, uh... kind of sorta, <laughs> <kinda> sorta <laughs> agree to you know pay what they don't want to call reparations, but but kind of are, but are if they, if that's what they are, it's really uh, a sad. Uh, uh, figure to say nothing that doesn't even get to the issues, didn't even bring the people uh, in in question in Namibia into the conversation, I digress. Um, uh, I digress. It's in the news. Um, But uh, that's what I work on um, right now. I just finished a book. Uh, It's going to be coming out with the Max Cotta Research Institute uh, through Penn State University Press uh, next spring, uh, entitled An Imperial Homeland, Forging German Identity in Southwest Africa. I'm really excited about this. It gets into a, the, the, uh, Germany's pre-colonial and colonial history. It really gets into some, um, uh, I think, the most important thing I could say here. Uh, it really highlights the role of Africans themselves in Germany's colonial project, uh, not as complicit actors, but actually as figures that were had a tremendous amount of violence committed against them, uh, but how they responded and actually how they stymied uh, the German government uh, at many instances. Uh, and so I bring those voices into this into this uh, history. Uh, and it's something that I'm really excited to um, uh, bring out and, and also, of course, to be finished with. Um, and it also allows me to get into my next project that is still very much in its early stages, but uh, is in some respects about what we were talking about today. Uh, it's it's going to take on Weimar. I'm really looking to uh, investigate Berlin uh, as a site of Weimar, but specifically the neighborhoods, the districts, the parks um, how these spatial how, how these how these spaces uh, influenced political social dynamics uh, just as much as the people that that existed on them uh, influenced the spaces um, and uh, i'm really excited because it 's going to allow me to get into what we got to talk about a little bit today some of the cultural elements of of weimar um, and it 's not going to be a romantic history in the sense that I only talk about the good um, but it 's going to I think bring a new um, a new perspective on Weimar's history.
0: Well, so I, think thank you. It's, I think it's important for I, I'm really excited about uh, your book about the African colonies uh, because that's something that gets lost quite a bit, especially when we're going uh, early 20th century, you know, post, you know, uh, uh, Berlin Conference into that scramble for Africa. Um, a lot of that gets lost in translation, and it, or or they just focused on like the Boer Wars. Uh, without realizing that Germany was there, Portu- you know, Portugal was there, um, you know that, that there were a lot of colonial powers in there that were heaping abuse and oppression on the people. So I think that's fucking rad. It's, it's going to be a rad book. I'm, I'm going to pick it up, I promise. Um, but uh, um, And when it comes out, what we'll do is we'll get you back on so we can do a bonus episode uh, like we did with Dr. Thompson so you can talk right. about the book and what went into writing it and everything. Um, I Thank but you. yes, Doctor Bla- Blackler, this was a great episode. I, I had a, a blast. Uh, thank you so much for coming on. Um, and uh, you know, hey everybody, if you like what you're hearing, uh, you could become a patron. So head over to patreon.com/backslash. You don't know history pod. Throw me five dollars. That would be really cool. Um, so I can keep popping out as much content as I can. Um, and uh, you know, I hope everybody loves this episode as much as I'm. You know. Love making it, and everybody have a great week, and I'll talk to you next week.